<laughs> this is Comfort Ye My People, Lesson 5. And uh, we have a young lad tapping near the table, so just deal with that. Joshua. Thank you very much. Um, yes, yeah, so this week uh, we are continuing our, our lessons on the Haftarot of Consolation. Um, we also are maybe having some technical difficulties, so we good? Okay. Uh, Haftarot of Consolation, which are the passages in Isaiah uh, that God um, is speaking to his people, encouraging Israel uh, after their exile, after their suffering. And um, traditionally, uh, the sages had us read some portions in this particular time of year uh, called the, uh, the Four Passages of Consolation or the Comfort Passages because they're meant to kind of encourage us and pick us up and get us ready for uh, Yom Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Um, they're at a time uh, when traditionally uh, Moses is on the mountain waiting for the second set of tablets. Um, it is a time in which uh, we are, uh, God is, is reconciling his people. So these passages are passages in which God reconciles the people. Um, my wife had the brilliant idea to pattern them after, uh, alongside the libretto uh, from the Handel's Messiah, because they have some of the exact same passages. Because Handel's Messiah quotes a lot from the passages in Isaiah, have you been comforting the people of Israel? And of course, because as we know, Messiah is the comfort of Israel. So this week we are in Isaiah chapter 54, verses 1 through 10 which is a wonderful, beautiful passage. Uh, if I could get someone to read us. Isaiah 54, 1 through 10. That way. Okay, go mom. Sing, O barren, you who have not born, break forth into singing and cry aloud. You who have not labored, child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwelling. Do not spare. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. And you, for you shall expand to the right and to the left, and your descendants will inhabit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed, neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your brotherhood anymore. For your maker is your husband. Lord of hosts is his name, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused as your God. For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. With little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting kindness, I will have mercy on you, says the Lord. For this is like the waters of Noah to me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so I have sworn that I would not be angry with you, nor rebuke you. For the mountains shall depart, and the hills be removed, and my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has mercy on you. I mean, um, yeah, as we read these passages, we ask God, of course, to open our eyes to wondrous things in his Torah. And this passage has a lot of wonderful things in it. I mean, this is a beautiful passage, um, really encouraging and supporting. And um, you really hear the, uh, um, you, 
can hear almost the softness in God's voice when he's, when he's saying these words to Israel. Um, so we talked about this. Um, for those of you who do not know, this is the second version of the class. We did the class on Tuesday night. The recording did not work, so we're reprising um, today. Uh, we talked about it the other night. The question was, what's a key word in this passage? Like, What do you feel like, if you could summarize this entire passage in one word, what's a word that comes to mind? Relationship. Loving kindness, okay. Relationship, good. Redemption. Redemption, also good. Anything else? Mercy. 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 Yeah, the one that I came up with, um, something my father-in-law mentioned here, was relationships. I, I really, you see this, the this intimacy between God and His people in this passage. There's multiple references to um, the people of Israel as a wife or as a mother. Um, he refers to himself as her as her master or her husband, depending on the translation that you have. Um, and God repeatedly throughout the, uh, the discussion is compare is related to Israel. He's talking about Israel as. Um, not in the context necessarily of of you and me, but as us. Um, the, the context between the two people, between the people and God, is in a relationship. And as the passage is going on, his comfort and support of them um, sounds a lot like a marriage. You know, it's like you know, you almost in that one little passage, he says, uh, um, "With a with a little wrath that I hide my countenance for a moment from you, but with everlasting kindness will I have compassion on you." Um, it's kind of has that, that feeling of like that, that lover's quarrel. The husband and wife, they have a fight. Things aren't going so well. They, um, uh, but then they, they reconcile. They realize, you know, this isn't really isn't important for um, one apologizes and forgives them however it goes, but it, they come to that harmony again. And, um, you know, in a healthy, strong relation, marriage relationship, um, hopefully that's, that's how most of the fights eventually resolve. And, and you see that with, in the case of Israel, this gets a betrayal, right? So Israel is the, the guilty party here. Um, but God has forgiven them, and so he's, he's welcoming her back. He's saying, I want, you, I want that relationship with you again, and I want you to feel like it's restored, it's renewed. Um, uh, my father-in-law the other night also mentioned something like a father-son. That was my son a second ago. Um, and, uh, and there is some of that, too. You know, you have that relationship of God to his people, um, as a father, as a parent, caring for his people, taking care of them, disciplining them when necessary. But in this particular passage, the focus is on marriage. And uh, this is not an unusual uh, symbol or, or allegory in the relationship of God to his people. You see it a lot. Um, Rashi teaches that the entire book of Song of Songs is only about God and Israel. Um, there are certain places that, you know, find that book really uncomfortable. It's slightly less uncomfortable if you read it in a Jewish translation because it's all about God and Israel. Um, it's a beautiful passage, though. It's, it's romantic and it's passionate. And it's, um, it's a relationship, though. It's a relationship of God and his people, and it's a relationship um, in which part of that relationship is, is a starting point. It's an origin point, and it gets deeper as it goes. And uh, so that traditionally... Um, and people can jump in at any time, by the way. Traditionally, um, I think this chapter 3 is talking about Solomon on his wedding day. Well, um, in, your, in your books that we gave you this week, we gave you a, a section from Talmud Tanit, um, 26b, in which they comment to say that uh, the so Solomon's wedding day passage is actually a reference to the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. And they say... Uh, the name King Solomon in this context, which also means King of Peace, is interpreted as a reference to God. And on the day of the gladness of his heart, this is the building of the temple, 
maybe we'll see later days. Um, earlier it says, on the day of his wedding, this is the giving of the Torah to the second set of tablets on Yom Kippur. Um, we mentioned earlier that we are building up towards the High Holy Days, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Um, and along the way, this, uh, you're right, Richard, that's a very good point. Um, the, uh, we're building up to Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah right now. Part of that uh, buildup, and the reason why we're doing these uh, portions of consolation is because this is a reconciliation here with God. So we had, the, we had the, the golden calf. Obviously, that went badly. That was bad. God was not happy with us. Um, actually, he told Moses, "Hey, look, I can, I can wipe him out right here. Just, you know, get out of my way." And Moses pleads for Israel and says, "No, no, no. I want, you know, you covenanted with them. Uh, don't destroy them. You have that. You owe it to their fathers." And uh, um, God. Chooses not to wipe out Israel despite their sin. Um, and over the next four days, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. He's fasting and praying, and um, and God sends at the end of that period gives a second set of the Ten Commandments. So there's the symbolism there. You broke the first commandments. Here is the second set. Um, and so the giving of the Torah before, as it were, the second set is like that, that marriage ceremony. And th there's a lot of imagery there, though. The, the Mount Sinai experience is like a marriage. You've got the cloud covering. It's sort of like the chupa in, in tradition. And the uh, tradition also talks about, you know, the the, um, the four I wills. You know, the, the um, and we see in Exodus in the, uh, the Passover portion. The four I wills are kind of like... The four I will passages are similar to what you would say in you're talking about marriage. You know, even God's words using like, I will take you as my people. Same Hebrew word there that you use for marriage over and over and over again in, in take, a bride. take a bride. Right. Um, you see that throughout the Torah. And Jacob took so and so as wife, right? So, uh, and I can say so and so because it's multiple wives. The point being that um, <laughs> taking someone as a wife, it's a, it's a romantic, it's a, it's a marriage language term. So God has the same experience with his people. He's going to take them as his people. Um, and even Moses acts, according to tradition, Moses acts almost like the uh, the matchmaker. Uh, I've heard some people compare him to that. Um, the Shaduk in Hebrew. Uh, so it's almost like the Exodus portion, Exodus experience, is like the, the courtship, right? So God introduces himself to Israel. He says, I want you to I want you to be my people. He rescues them. And then at 40 days later, there's the wedding ceremony with the Torah, almost like a Yeshua, a covenant, a marriage covenant between them. Exactly. You had us read Jeremiah 2. Right, yeah. Jeremiah uh, 2. Go ahead. The word of the Lord came to me saying, this is Jeremiah 2, verses 1 and 2. Go, go and proclaim in the hearing of Yerushalayim. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. How you followed me in the wilderness in a land And that imagery shows up over and over again, God comparing the relationship to those early days, um, kind of like early days in, the, in a marriage or courtship, which are usually pretty positive. Um, so that's uh, that's God's, God's almost talking about like your first love. You think about it in Revelation, similar language there. Um, also in Jeremiah, one of the things we, we had you guys read, Talking about covenant also has a reference to marriage. So, if someone read Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. I got it. Who's got it? I'll go for it. Go for it. Read nice and loudly because the mic's all the way over here. Okay, what was it again? 
-hmm. Jeremiah 31, <laughs> verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares Adonai, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers today, when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares Adonai. For this is the covenant that I will make the house of Israel after those days, declares Adonai. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor. And each his brother say, No Adonai, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares Adonai. For I will declare the for I will forgive the iniqui their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So the this this particular moment here, God is saying to them that He's gonna renew his covenant with them or rebuild a new covenant with them. Um, it is different from the covenant at Sinai, but what's the differences? What does it talk about? What are the components that you see there? What's the most important one? I think the medium on which, I mean, certainly in our group, we, we recognize that the, the covenant is the same. The, 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 the specifications, rules, yeah. the Torah is the same, um, but the medium on which it's written. Instead of stone and tablet, we get uh, you know, the fleshy tables of our heart. Um, and I think to your point, we're all going to know him. There's going to be a knowledge and an intimacy with God that we just don't have right now. We read about him. We try to figure out how he is. But ultimately, there's always going to be a little bit of a gap because you can't see him. And that's with those of us who understand his Torah and are trying to keep it. But right. God's saying you won't even have to talk to any of your neighbors and be like, Did you, do you know Hashem? I mean, you know, I work uptown, so I sometimes see street preachers and whatnot. That's completely unnecessary. I mean, think about that for a second. Literally everybody, at least in Israel, is going to know God. There's not going to be any gaps. So it's a holistic relationship between yeah. God and his people. It's everybody's going to be joining him. Go ahead. Well, I'm thinking about where he says, I think in a different place, the word says, I will write them on your heart. On your heart. Isn't it in a different place as well? Yeah. It's the new thing. It's yes, later on in the same passage. Right, yeah. It's written on our hearts. It says it also in, in Deuteronomy. That's right. It says, I'm going to circumcise your heart, right? So you, you may love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. So he commands us in Deuteronomy, what, chapter 6, to yeah. love God with everything. But then in Deuteronomy 30, 31, he tells them, I'm going to make you, in effect, I'm going to change you so that you will do this naturally. Now, is there a later time that this is said, or is the, am I just thinking of... I mean, thinking it's different times, but it's really the same. Well, it's also referenced in Ezekiel, too, um, as well. And, the, um, but and I think it's that the, the laws I, of God right. are written on your heart. Right. Well, if you think about it, really the, the difference in Jeremiah 31, I think to me, is um, he says it's different from the covenant which you made before, which your fathers broke. And then he proceeds to talk about how he's going to make a covenant with them that they won't break, that they will keep. So what's the difference? The difference isn't the covenant. He's not going to make it easier or have no rules or different rules. Mm -hmm. The difference is the people. The people are going to be changed. Mm -hmm. um, and if you think about, uh, it's like in a, in, a, in a marriage relationship, if you have like a, a recommittal of vows or something like that, um, obviously when they, when they, when they you know, do that recommittal of vows, they're not saying, okay, well, in, in this version, you can commit adultery. That's fine. 
I mean, that's, that's not part of recommittal. The difference is the people are saying, no, I recommit. I am redoubling my efforts. I'm going to make this relationship more serious, whatever it may be. That's the intent of a new covenant, so to speak, at that stage. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. Um, I think the glory is probably re referencing either Hebrews 8.10 or 10.16. Hebrews 10.16, this is the covenant that I will make with them. I mean, it's quoting back to Jeremiah 31. Right? This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days. The Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. That is Right, and that, that's a quote from Jeremiah that's pattern, that, that's repeated in Hebrews, specifically tying the covenant to Yeshua, exactly. and specifically to Yeshua's sacrifice as as a um, a means to it. a guarantor of that covenant, a, uh, the sealing of that covenant, so to speak, yes. or the deposit. But yeah, so if you if we go to Matthew, verse twenty, or chapter twenty six, um, someone could look up chapter uh, Matthew twenty six, verse twenty six. Through twenty nine, um, context real quick. This is from the Last Supper, according to you know Christian tradition. What we really mean by that is the the Seder meal. Yeshua is having a Passover Seder, a meal of Passover with his people, uh, his disciples, and um, that's the context in which we're in. So Yeshua then, in the middle of the meal, has this to say. Go ahead. Oh. It wasn't his Last Supper. It was his last Seder. It was his last day. Now as they were eating, Yeshua took bread and after blessing broke it and gave it to the Talmud and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, is it how far? Well, you're going with the next one, yeah. I tell you, I will not drink it again, but drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Well, you see there, there's, there's the, the covenant reference again. Go back to Jeremiah 31. Um, the body and the, the blood references tie into that passage you mentioned from Hebrews, which also talks about uh, a body you gave to me, talking about this is how I'm going to achieve that acceptance from God through God, Yeshua's sacrifice, physical sacrifice. Um, but he says here again, you get that which is poured out for many the forgiveness of sins, right? So that forgiveness of sins reference we got from Jeremiah 31 again, which is exactly what we've been saying. This uh, covenant which makes it different, makes it special, is not a changing of the rules. It's a changing of the relationship. Now the people's sins are forgiven. Now the people's hearts are changed to want that relationship to be deeper. Um, and what is the catalyst of this? What is what is the Who is the proponent that makes this happen? It's Messiah. Without Messiah, this doesn't happen. You know, and, and Hebrews makes that clear. They, he ties the connect, the writer of Hebrews, he or she, I suppose, ties the connection between the passages in Psalms referencing Yeshua's physical sacrifice to Jeremiah 31 on purpose to say this is the method, the mechanism that God uses to enable this covenant to take place. And Yeshua himself um, is a big fan of weddings. I mean, you got the, the parable of the... Um, uh, a lot of end times parables actually do with weddings. You know, we talk about the, 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 the virgins with their oil, you know, and the, the bridegroom is coming late at night and they, they, they retain their oil or whatnot as a symbol for those who are prepared for the coming of Messiah. Um, he references the, uh, the meal, of the, the marriage meal, going the highways and byways. Yeah, and he references the marriage of the Lamb as well. Um, and even that, the whole parable about the uh, gathering in people from all over, it's a wedding meal. And, uh, 
And um, something on Tuesday night that Alex pointed out was that you, know, you have to be dressed appropriately. You know, the guy that's not dressed well, he gets thrown out. Um, which is a great reference because we get the exact same imagery in the book of Revelation. So if you go with me to Revelation 19. So, and, and think about Yeshua as the mechanism of this new covenant, of this of this ultimate marriage, so to speak, or this, this renewal of vows, um, he is also a, a primary character in the relationship. You know, it, it, it's not just that he's a, uh, a vehicle for making it possible. He is also um, he is also uh, that uh, mediator, that interface between us and God to meet with him and relate with him as a husband. So it's not surprising that when you read these passages in, 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 in Revelation and elsewhere, talk about the marriage supper of the Lamb, as my father-in-law referenced, it's like, it's not just, it's not just the marriage supper of God. Yeshua himself is acting as, as the, uh, he is God, but he's acting as sort of our, um, that mediator, that, in, that the, in, not in between. He's the, he is the representation of God that we can identify with, that we can connect with. I wanted to interject, it ties into what you're talking about. Um, and this I started praying for my son Isaac mm -hmm. before he came and really started taking part here the Lord as we were reading this it made me really aware to pray this for him mm -hmm. and it says you control everything it is you who tr controls kings and kingship is yours I am a servant of the Holy One blessed is he and I prostrate myself before him and before the glory of his Torah at all times not in any man do I put trust, nor on any angel do I rely, only on the God of heaven, who is the God of truth, whose Torah is truth, and whose prophets are true, and who acts liberally with kindness and truth. In him do I trust, and to his glorious and holy name do I declare praises. Amen. May it be your will that you open my heart to the Torah, and that you fulfill the wishes of my heart, and the heart of your entire people Israel for good for life and for peace. And I started praying for my son that you would open his eyes to the Torah. And there was another place that says, enlighten our eyes in your Torah. Attach our hearts to your commandments and unify our hearts to love and fear your name. And may we not feel inner shame for all eternity because we have trusted in your great and awesome holy name. May we exalt and rejoice in your salvation. Amen. Right, and it's it's reminds me it's of the, him that opens our hearts. Right, it's like First John, we love him because he first loved us. You exactly. know, it's the, and that's um, and that's really the language you're getting in Isaiah and in Jeremiah and elsewhere. God is the uh, God is the um, initiator. He's the one who makes this relationship work. He's the one who comes to us first. He's the one who goes back to us when we um, when we have failed him and the relationship is broken. Um, and ultimately, it's building to something. I mean, that's what you're reading here is talking about from the from the Siddur, the passages from the um, morning prayers and Shabbat. It's it's we're getting to um, we're getting to a destination. It's not just that God's not just forgiving us or redeeming us so that way um, we can keep making the same mistakes. The the intent, the purpose, the goal is to get us to a place where the relationship is complete. And so uh, in Revelation chapter 19, verses seven. Nine. Through nine, yeah. If someone would read that for me. Got it. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to close herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. 
Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. And you see that, 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 that not dichotomy, that balance of God's grace and our righteousness, right? So verse 7, it says, The marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. She's prepared. She's ready. At the same time, it says in the next verse, It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. So this is a gift from God. This is something that God has given to her. He's allowing her to be pure and clean. But then it says, what is that? The fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So it's also their good deeds. And it's it's almost, I think about uh, in Psalms, when times when David's like, you know, judge me according to my righteousness. And uh, and it's like, I, I, sometimes I feel like uh, certain scholars read that and they're like, well, uh, Obviously, he must only be talking about you know the righteousness from from Yeshua because he's not righteous. And it's like no, no, no. When I think I believe when David says that, he's saying, I mean, not that's not righteousness does not come from Yeshua, of course it does. But I'm saying I think that when you, David's praying that, and there's reference here to the righteous acts of the saints, it's the idea of like judge me according to the good things I did, not according to the things I did that were not so good. But we have been called to be righteous, and so what's given to the the, the bride is the opportunity to be clothed in just that. That all of those mistakes and those errors and those failures that, that clouded those righteous deeds that were themselves actually given to her by God um, as part of um, workmanship, if we're going to Ephesians, uh, are are like are the are the only thing that God is seeing in that moment. He's only seeing her goodness. But to your point earlier, the covenant hasn't changed. The covenant has instructions, and keeping those instructions is what that relationship is built upon. And I, I wouldn't call them righteous deeds at this point as much as instructions on how to live. This happens to be righteousness, but these instructions also include what to do. The instructions on what to do if you break the instructions. But you should do this. But if you don't do that, then you should do this. If you should and you don't, then do. If you should not, and you do, then do that. And so throughout life, throughout history, God has been providing that means of restoration. But it was always that gift from God. I mean, even describing the offerings and the sacrifices that they were making to restore the physical relationship with God, like Yom Kippur, that God's presence would physically dwell among them in spite of their, their failures or issues. Um, this was a mechanism that God, God gave graciously. Right? It isn't, it isn't like God ignores their sin or just says it doesn't matter to him or that the people came to him and said, God, I'll make you a deal. I'll give you some animals. You, 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 know, you look the other way a few times and we'll be okay. That's not, this, is not, this, is not a, uh, you know, this is not a Godfather kind of relationship. Right? This, is a, this is a relationship between God who's, who's loving and kind and, and forgiving and it's, he's, not, he's, he's asking for things in return not because he needs them, or because he can somehow be, you know, it's somehow the blood of bulls and goats would ever take away sin, but simply as as an act on their behalf to prove that yes, that repentance was legitimate. Yes, I do mean this, and because that that was ultimately always what repent was the restoration was about. Yeshua's sacrifice from the foundation of the world, right? So it wasn't like he needed animals, but the animals were a mechanism to prove their repentance was was intentional, was legitimate, as well as I believe a physical connection to God. So throughout this relationship, there are these failures and this restoration. But the new covenant and what Yeshua's death and resurrection um, secures for us is that permanence, right? That permanence.
permanently good relationship that we're going to have in the world to come. Did you have a comment, Lauren? I did. Um, my understanding was righteousness is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but righteousness is a right relationship with God. It's not that we're perfect, but it's a right relationship with God. No, you're taking your oh. And then I'm thinking about David, you know, where he says, cleanse my heart, O Lord, and renew a right spirit within me. Because we're going to do wrong things every day, probably. I mean, probably without doubt, we do. But you're grinning. It's true. It's true. You're do wrong you know, but, but he brings us back around. That's what repentance is all about. I mean, ideally, we get to a place where we're not doing wrong things. But, but we, we, will. we will. We're human beings. We're always tempted. We're going to give up tempting us. You know, so. Hopefully, we get better and better. Hopefully, or more, um, righteous. more, more righteous. committed hmm. to following Torah, and and, and knowing there are consequences to not following Torah. Oh yes, you know. Right. I don't and like being whipped. Maybe y'all do, but I don't like being whipped. So it's like, yeah, I did that wrong this time. Let's do it a little bit better. Well, in the Torah, of course, even in the Torah, it makes it very clear that it's not too high for you. You are capable of doing it. But as we know from our our practical experience, we have a tendency not to. Um, so what God is offering to us... sages so good. As you read about some of these sages, they are so committed. Right. That they don't sin. That's not to say they don't need Messiah. Right. That is to say that it, just like God said, it is able to be done. You can walk generically without sin. Generically, not not every day necessarily. Of but course, yeah. but still, it is doable. And we read about these men and women because their lives are are totally righteous. And the fact that he we says do there's sin, there's no perfect person. And that's right. Never says, sinned. And, and Jesus did didn't say, say there's they, no good man. Didn't say they never sinned, Lord. Oh. These people have done what you just described. Every day they get better and better. Mm. And now they're to a point where sin is something that's completely abhorrent to them. They don't want to sin. And they choose not to sin. Mm. And yes, they can live a sinless day without any problem. And God does miracles through them because of their righteous walk. They still need the sun because they're not without sin. Right. But well, that's we, what Psalms we, is we, we, we mess up if we think that God was lying when he said in Deuteronomy, it's not too far. You, you can, can do this. It's can. right there. But the well, point, though, me, though, it didn't, Jesus said, they said, what was it? They said he's good. He said there's no good man. Right. But God. But the point, though, is exactly, that... Exactly, that's my point. But that, mean, like, but that doesn't mean that we can't... That means that everybody needs a Messiah. Absolutely. And it doesn't mean that people can't walk sinlessly. So on, we have several basis. people that were blameless, according to the Torah, right there in the Apostolic right. Scripture. Like, uh, Enoch. Oh, forget Enoch. Enoch. God, I'm but, talking about, yeah. you know, Yeshua's parents. Uh, and, Zechariah and Elizabeth were, yeah. were all described as blameless according to the Torah. Paul describes that doesn't that mean, way. right, that doesn't mean they were without sin. Completely. No. Well, what still, does that mean? It means that they it didn't means, violate the Torah. It means they kept that the Torah did. consistently and also, ultimately, to your point, they had a mechanism to get forgiveness. Of course, repentance. And But their lifestyle, and generically speaking, right, and that too, 
and then, but generically speaking, I think if you read Paul's life, is he perfect? No. I mean, we have an example where he gets very angry with uh, with yeah. Barnabas, and there's a whole situation with with Mark, uh, with Mark right? That doesn't go so well. And I think we can defi- decisively say that that um, by the way that, that Paul changes the way that he treats Mark later, it looks like even Paul recognized that was a mistake. So did Paul sin? Of course he sinned. But on the majority of the, the day-to-day of his life, by the time that Yeshua intervenes and he's he's walking daily with him, I would say that he probably went mul- you know most days with very few of any mistakes because he because he had trained That's himself and worked says. towards that. Place. I think though, uh, I do believe that whenever you start thinking in this realm, though, it would be a temptation to think self-righteous. Well, Which is a sin. But that point, I don't, the point that I don't is, think if you're if you're keeping the Torah and you understand that God's instructions are clear to make you more like Him, it's hard to believe that you would sin by becoming self-righteous, thinking that you don't need Messiah. Well, that's and not the that's not the Paul we read of. He says he's blameless according to the Torah. He himself says. But then that he also himself. says in Ephesians, to, to what I was saying earlier, that those righteous actions that he does are well, God working in him. That's it. You know, and certainly acknowledging the I acknowledge source of them. that. I just I would do just I caution do. us exactly. to be careful. It's easy to start judging other people. Oh yeah, and, we're not talking and, about and that. to see ourselves as self righteous. Yeah, we're not you talking know, about that at all. No, I understand. I'm just I'm just laying it out yeah. there. It's just important that we make sure that everybody who's listening understands it's a lie to believe you can't keep the Torah. That's a lie. God says clearly. You can. You can. God says clearly that several people did on a regular basis to the point where he called them blameless. And Enoch walked with God. I mean, we've got so many examples of people, Abraham, that that were righteous. But to your point, though, and and highlighting, they all need Messiah. And if you read in the Psalms, and Paul himself talks that they all have sinned, right? So even though... We have this initiation of the new covenant through Yeshua, which you reference from Jeremiah 31. And it talks about having the Torah written on your heart, and it talks about everybody knowing God, and it talks about in Deuteronomy about your heart being circumcised, that you love God with all of your heart and soul and might. I have to say for myself at least, maybe not for the rest of you, but for me, I'm not there yet. And the fact that I'm not there yet kind of makes you feel like the covenant hasn't really happened. But I think there's a solution for this. If you think about it as a marriage covenant, in ancient Judaism, um, their marriage covenant was in two parts. The first part, what we call betrothal, um, is different from the marriage ceremony. But in Judaism, it's a very important to understand this, they were both legally the same. If you were betrothed to someone and you committed immorality with somebody else, it was adultery. It wasn't fornication. legally married even if you, you well, because you were because you are because in in the Jewish mindset, the cultural mindset that the Torah is playing off of, the betrothal period and the marriage were legally the same, but experientially they were different. You didn't live together during that time. In fact, during that time, traditionally, the the husband would be preparing a place for his wife, getting things ready for his wife. The wife would have an opportunity at this point to be repairing herself, thinking about what she wants to do, getting you know training and getting ready to be a wife. And, a, and, a, and eventually a mother, and so if you see Joseph and and, uh, and Mary, they're betrothed, right? They're not married. Very clear, they're not married based on the passage. But what does Joseph say? He's concerned about her possibly having committed immorality, 
So what is his response? His response is he's going to divorce her because they were legally bound together through that betrothal period. So if you think about what Yeshua does for us in his sacrifice and resurrection, the reference we got in Matthew 26, it's like the betrothal period. Legally, we're his. The new covenant is in place, and we are his spouse, and it's, it's over, binding, right? He is committed to us. Experientially, just like the, 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 uh, the betrothed bride-to-be was experiencing, we are not with him all the time. We don't have that perfect intimacy and relationship yet. So while we, have, it's like if, you know, Paul talks about justification, sanctification, glorification, right? So we've had that initiation of the relationship, but the culmination of the relationship hasn't happened. That's the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's why its language terminology is compared to the festivities that are tied in with the actual wedding ceremony. Because that's, we're in the in-between. The relationship has started. It's legally binding. God's given us the Holy Spirit even as like a, a an earnest money, as a guarantee. But the, the marriage hasn't happened yet. Yes, sir. You know, back to your point on, on Joseph and Mary, we see in the scripture that even though they were just betrothed, when they traveled down uh, to Bethlehem to go to David's birthplace for the census, she didn't travel with her family. She traveled with him as if they were married, but they weren't married. Really? Yeah. Yeah. They traveled together. I mean, but they were not intimate. They weren't together. And so in the same way, we got this closer relationship with Messiah now because we are betrothed, but we don't have the intimacy that will come, hopefully. And there are responsibilities as well. I mean, that's the thing we're talking about. Like, if you committed adultery, or if you committed immorality, it was adultery, right? There's an expectation. There's a there's a commitment that you've made, both parties, to each other. Um, when Greg was here on Tuesday, one of the things he talked about is you read through um, the Psalms, and you see all this love that David talks about for the Torah. I mean, what a what a beautiful picture of that of that spouse-like relationship, right? I mean, what does he want? He wants to do what his what, 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 what the person he loves the most would want him to do. I mean, isn't that what hopefully every healthy marriage is supposed to look like? I mean, when people first get to start, get to know each other in a, in a romantic relationship, I feel like, you know, what, the first, uh, you know, half a dozen dates are basically what? Just getting to know each other. You want to know their favorite color, their favorite movie. You want to know uh, what, what do they like, what they don't like, what's their dream vacation, what are their goals and fears, and what are some things that they really can't stand, what's pet peeve, whatever these things might be. Because you want to know them, and you want to make sure you make them happy, and you want to understand them. And that's what the Torah is. The Torah is literally God telling us exactly what his favorite color is, you know, so to speak. He's telling us exactly what his pet peeves are that he can't stand, but people do. He's telling us exactly what his vision of a perfect world would be. He's giving us an idea of what, you know, the dream date is for him, right? That's what the Torah is. And a Torah is, and so if we, I mean, for us, we're really in love with him. We should see the Torah as this beautiful opportunity to get to know someone that we love so much. And rather than seeing it as sort of this dead book of, you know, instructions that we have to keep, instead it should be this very vibrant and dynamic and alive document that is a representation of a person. It's like God filled out a personality profile and handed it to you. The will and wisdom of God. 
Yeah, and, and, um, and even more powerful because it has the ability to change us as well. Um, now, what's interesting about this passage, in talking about marriage, talk about marriage in the, in the Torah, marriage is not limited to just the people of Israel in the sense of the people of God. What's amazing about this, these passages is that they actually carry with them um, a little bit of a bigger picture. So if you go into Hosea chapter 2, let's go to Hosea chapter 2, and uh, if you're in an English Bible, you're going to want to start in verse 14. If you're in a Hebrew Bible, mm -hmm. a little confusing, uh, one of those weird times the passages don't line up, the Hebrew Bible will start on 16. Um, it's chapter 2, and to set the stage, chapter 2 of Hosea is basically the good and the bad in the relationship with Israel. Chapter 2 begins, the first half of it, things are really bad, really bad, and God makes it clear he's going to judge Israel to bring them to repentance. But chapter 2 is all about that reconciliation. Okay, after I've judged you, I'm going to call you back, and you're going to fall in love with me again. This relationship is going to be completed. Um, and this follows on top of chapter 1, where God tells Hosea to go and marry a harlot. Um, and when she has children, um, not knowing who the father is, God tells him to name the, the children, not my people, and has not obtained mercy. No mercy. No mercy no mercy is a great name for a football player. Unfortunately, I think No Mercy was the girl's name in the story, but oh well. Um, the point being that, uh, um, but that that gets reprised in Hosea chapter 2, so that's why I give you the, the background. So someone can read Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 to the end of chapter. You got it? Go ahead. Nice and loud. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness, and speak comfort to her. I will give her her vineyards from there, and the valley of Kor as a door of hope. She shall sing there, as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband, and no longer call me my master. For I will take from her mouth the names of all, and they shall be remembered by their name no more. In that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, and with the creeping the ground. Bow and sword of battle I will shatter from the earth to make them lie down safely. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. It shall come to pass in that day that I will answer says the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. The earth shall answer with grain, with new wine, and with oil. They shall answer Jezreel. Then I will sow her for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people, and they shall say, you are my God. We read that every morning when we wrap. Oh. Right, to fill in, to get that marriage, you wrap it, you actually, Christianly, you wrap it on your, uh, what's it, is it, in Judaism, the wedding finger, which is the middle finger, um, so the finger that goes straight to the heart. Uh, you wrap the, to fill in around that, and you say, that patch, I'll betroth each me forever. So that, there's a betrothal language, right, we talked about earlier. Um, and you see the parallel between here and in, uh, in Jeremiah. I mean, God says, as I think something Greg pointed out on Tuesday, I'll remove the names, the Baalim from out. I'm gonna, I'm not, you're not even going to talk about all these, you know, 
bad influences and, and idols that you've had before. He says later on in the passage, it talks about um, that uh, I will be your people, and you will be my people, and I will be your God. It's this, it's this commitment, it's this, this like definitiveness, right? The relationship's going to be concealed, it's going to be consistent. You're going to be who you're supposed to be, I'm going to be who I said I would be, and that's the relationship's going to function. Um, in, in this passage, what's interesting, though, is it's not limited to just the people of Israel. God has a global view in this passage. If you go into uh, one of the earlier passages, it says, I will make a covenant for them on that day with the beasts of the field, with the bowels of the sky, and the creeping things of the earth, and I will let them lie down safely. The, uh, the commentary from Rashi says, I will destroy harmful creatures from the world. Think about Isaiah talking about the end of times, the lion laying down with the lamb, right, and all that stuff. It's like, so when the people of Israel are restored with God, the entire world will benefit. Literally. The animals. I mean, we're talking everything. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be beneficial. Um, but what's fascinating is the very last verse, uh, the sages see this passage in referencing the inclusion of Gentiles, and Paul does too. So in the, in the very last verse in the chapter 23, in the English Bibles, 25 in the Hebrew, it says, I will sow her for me in the land, and I will have compassion upon the unpitied one, and I will say to them that are not my people, you are my people. Well, I will sow for me in the land. I'm quoting now from the Talmud, from Pesachim 87b. It says, as one who sows a seah, which is a small amount of grain, or a certain amount of grain, in order to gather many korim, so you sow your grain, gather in lots of, lots of wheat, right? So many proselytes be added to them. In other words, I will sow her to the land. It's like, I'm going to plant in Israel, and I'm going to reap more people beyond Israel. So the Talmud is saying that when God restores his people, it's going to end up drawing in the nations, right? It's going to end up bringing in more people. Paul, from the exact same verse, draws the same conclusion. He quotes the end of the verse. Um, I think we figured out on the Tuesday it was Romans 9. Um, Romans 9, he says, uh, those who are not my people, I'll call my people. See, in, in Hosea chapter 2, it's talking about God's people. You've acted like you're not my people, so I've called you like you're not my people, and now I'm saying, no, you are my people. I'm taking you back. But Paul, like in, in classic Midrash form, finds the, uh, the additional meaning behind the text, the secondary meaning, which is say, those of you who are literally not his people, you're not genetically Israel, I will call you my people. Amazing. And Romans chapter 9 is, um, and building up to Romans chapter 11, is this idea that God is going to bring the Gentiles in. Not because he's getting married again, he's not the husband of two wives, not, not Israel in the church. Um, nor is he decided, okay, the Israel thing is over, now I've got a new wife and that's great. Um, instead, this is, I'm going to bring the Gentiles in to Israel. Not in addition to, but into. They are going to become soon within Israel be part of Israel. I mean, the example that we gave on Tuesday, I, I mentioned my wife and I went to dinner the other night, and I'm sitting at the restaurant, and the, the waitress comes up from behind me, and she sees my, my kippah, my, my yarmulke, my Jewish hat, as uh, my son calls it, <laughs> hat. Um, he, uh, she sees that, and she walks up, and it was so funny. She's like, so the soup of the day is, uh, is mushroom, is a, you know, a cream of mushroom, and the chef puts sausage in it. I don't know why he even did that, but he did, you know, so you should know, you know, something like that. It's like, oh, and the specialist muscles. So, you know, basically we're like, right, we just move on now and get on the next thing. But she knew just from seeing the, the, the clothing that I was wearing, she knew exactly what food I ate. 
Um, because if you think about it, that's what God was always doing with his people. He was creating a culture. He was creating a people for himself that looked different from everybody else. And kept his instructions. Kept his instructions. They eat differently. They celebrate different holidays. They dress differently. And hopefully they act differently. They treat each other and others differently. As Yeshua said, and Greg pointed out on Tuesday, you'll know them by their love. They're going to become people who are so um, transformed by God that they will seem different. And yet, I would hope that when we do that, when we act that way, that people don't see us as a replacement for God's people, but rather part of God's people. Amen. We want to look like we are part of Israel. Because God has chosen Israel, and he's allowed us to be grafted in. As Paul says, don't boast against the branches. Don't be like, well, hey, they're, they're, you know, they, they sinned, so they got to now. So I, uh, I end up... Uh, taking their place. No, instead they're saying, no, 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 you you have been given a gracious opportunity to join them. To join them. Um, and that's the context we have here. So, going back to our Haftarah, um, I know you're wondering, where are we going with all this? Haftarah passage um, does the same thing. So we talked about the Haftarah passage, it has this wedding imagery, but in, in the very beginning of the chapter, it actually also has imagery that relates to bringing in Gentiles. So back to Isaiah 54, um, 1 through 2. Well, I'll just go through 1 and... Uh, well, 1 through 3. Go through 1 through 3, sure. Uh, so let me read uh, Isaiah 54, 1 through 3 again. I got it. Go for it. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. Enlarge the place of your tent, and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Don't hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations, and will be and will people the desolate cities. Um, so you get the nations get brought in there. Israel taking them, which is an interesting thing about being grafted in, the part of Israel, there's certainly some imagery there. But more importantly, um, verses 1 and 2 uh, show up in some important places. So um, in verse 2, it says, widen the place of your tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of your habitations. The term tent uh, is a very interesting term when you think about the nations. If you go all the way back, way back to the very beginning, to Genesis, we're going to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 9. Um, we, get, we see an interesting prophecy or blessing from Noah. What's fascinating is that in Isaiah 54, God tells him, as the waters of Noah, I will not destroy you again. I, I'm not in the waters of Noah anymore in the same way I'm not going to destroy you again, right? So he's referenced Noah already. And then we get this reference, this, reference, this odd reference to enlarging your tent about Israel. Well, in Genesis chapter 9, Moses, or, uh, Noah has this interesting passage. He talks to his son Shem. Shem is the ancestor of Abraham, hence Semitic, right? Shem, Semitic, Shemetic, right? I don't know how you're pronouncing it. Um, the sheen and the seen, right? Um, then he's referencing his one son Shem and his other son Japheth, or Japheth. Japheth, if you read through the next passages in Genesis, you'll see that Japheth is basically Europe. Um, some of his sons end up being names that you'll recognize elsewhere in scripture. Is referencing, I believe, to Spain, possibly Germany or Turkey. Um, 
other uh, Greece, other parts of Europe. So um, Genesis chapter 9, verses 26 and 27. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. That's an odd reference. Let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Um, notice it doesn't say let them dwell together in, in a shared tent, or in some sort of tent commune. You know, Instead, it says let them dwell in the tents of Shem. So Japheth is supposed to be like a guest, so to speak, in Shem's house. He is, he is given an uh, opportunity to live with Shem, so certainly there's the rights and privileges and whatnot, but it's Shem's tent, um, which I think if you think about that in terms of Israel and Gentiles, I feel like that's the way it should be, right? We, we have given the opportunity to be part of Israel. But Israel is the base, right? We're not replacing them. We're not changing the rules. We're not kicking them out. We are stepping onto their territory, their turf, and they have been gracious enough through God's act of grace to us to let us in. The ultimate uh, Israelite, so to speak, Messiah, Yeshua, um, born to a Israelite woman, um, and at the same time, God of the whole universe, calling us in welcoming us in to join them, to join them mm -hmm. in the tent of Israel, in this tent of Shem. This language of tent um, shows up again in reference to Gentiles in Acts chapter 15. So in Acts chapter 15, we get this uh, context, right, of um, there's this uh, Pharisees, the Prushim, so to speak, have been converting to join Yeshua. Conversion, maybe the wrong word to use there. They have been joining Yeshua, believing in Yeshua. They're still keeping the Torah, they're acting like Pharisees generically, but they believe in Yeshua now. There is a slight problem. The Pharisees came from a background not entirely out of scope, or out of, for no reason, where Gentiles are not to be trusted. Really bad experiences with Gentiles. Every time we brought the Gentiles in to hang out with the Jews, the Gentiles end up leading the Jews astray. It goes very badly. The Gentiles, they're just, mm, they're not very good at sticking with us. I think in that, in that time frame we discussed Tuesday night, they would only accept the conversion or joining of a Gentile after multiple generations before they could be trusted actually keep the Torah. Right, and then on top of that, the conversion process was quite complicated. So you would, um, you know, traditionally you'd reject the person like two or three times. No, 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 you don't. I mean, let me tell you how bad it is this to is be bad. a Jew. And then only after that, then, okay, fine. You really want to, fine. You can come in. But before you get in, you got to offer an offering. you got to get baptized. you got to commit to keep the entire Torah and all of the uh, declarations of the, uh, the Jewish court system, the Sanhedrin, the sages, so to speak, the rabbinic Judaism, not really, but at the time, that concept. And, of course, get circumcised, which that term then comes almost like a, a shorthand for the whole process. Circumcision equals conversion. Because, well, let's just say if you're a man, that's the part you're going to remember the most. Yes. So um, circumcision um, is this man-made conversion process. It was in response to the fact that Gentiles were pouring in. The court of the Gentiles was huge in the temple, the, the second temple. Because all these Gentiles were just going, wait, oh, God, God of Israel. This is cool. I don't know. You know. For some reason, I'm just I'm drawn to these people. I'm drawn to what they do. I'm drawn to their God. I want to know more. I want to offer offerings, whatever. And so they, the the Jews saw two problems. One, if we just let anybody in to hang out with us, and they're not really committed, 
they're going to end up becoming a thorn in our side. They're going to lead us astray, they're going to corrupt us, and it's going to be a mess. Which has happened. Which in the past. happened multiple times, and continues to happen. Quite frankly, I think there's a reason why Gentiles aren't trusted for multiple generations. Um, we have our habits, and sometimes they're unfortunately ingrained. Um, the other problem, this is not so healthy, there is that sense also of loss of identity. Well, if anybody can be part of Israel, then nobody is part of Israel. Well, Israel's not special anymore, right? That's not really true, but that's kind of how they felt. So they created this system where they're like, okay, man-made conversion, here's how we're going to do it, and once you do it, you cease to be a Gentile. Now you are, we are, in our minds, not in our minds, you are now genetically Israel. But that's not God's plan. It was never God's plan. God's plan was always the Gentiles would join in and stay Gentiles. You see that in Revelation. All these tribes, all these tongues, right? They're all going to be worshiping the land. Mm-hmm. But they're all part of Israel, so to speak. They're, in, they're embedded in his kingdom. But at the same time, they're not genetically Israel. That was God's intent. It was on purpose. But, the, but some of the, uh, the Pharisees' time, they did not get that vision. So, with that in the background, I think my mom has a comment. I was going to say, I'm sitting here in Revelation 4 and 5, where it's going through listing the 24 elders and all gathered around the throne. And then they're looking for somebody to open the scroll and God's worthy. And John's weeping. And then the lamb comes and they talk about the lamb. And then the passage says, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You've made us kings and priests to our gods and we will reign on the earth. So, you know, it's a pretty amazing thing that in this scene of heaven, of the throne room, and it specifically mentions the 24 elders, and then it goes through all this, and it says, but I will bring you out of all these people's ambitions. Right. right. God is always a global picture. And uh, so in Acts chapter 10, Peter gets a chance to meet of the Italian cohort, <laughs> Cornelius. What's fascinating about Cornelius is we learned a very important fact about Cornelius. Cornelius is not a convert. He's a God-fearer, which means, keep in mind, conversion was how you got to be really in, right? That's how you really got to be considered part of Judaism. But Cornelius is a God-fearer, which means at least at that time in his life, he intentionally had chosen not to convert. Because he hadn't. At least, you know, maybe he hadn't. it, it, It doesn't tell us that he started the process. I assume if you're a Roman centurion, <laughs> unlikely that you're going to probably convert genetically. So, I mean, you know, not genetically, but convert to what they would consider genetics. So, um, in light of that, he is a God-fearer. He is in the model of all of the Gentiles before him, like Ruth and Rahab and others, right, who said, I see your God, I want to be a part of the, well, those who worship that God. And some of the notable Gentiles in this room. Right, this well, room. There were, and there were apparently women that would come to the places where Paul went, like along the rivers, sure. or places right. that were the same type, that were yeah. God-fearers, that had right. been seeking after this. And we get the Gibeonites as an example, you know? Like, the Gibeonites come to Israel and Joshua, and they say, hey, look, we want to be part of your crew. Don't wipe us out. Of course, they lie about it. But the point was, that was their intent. Um, they lied about who they were. But they actually did end up sticking with Israel. In fact, generations later, they're still there. The yes. water bearers. But I don't know that we need to use liars as a means of getting into the kingdom of God. My point, though, is that they, um, these were people, non-Jews, right, who, who wanted to become part of Israel. And, and they accepted upon themselves that covenant relationship with God. 
I mean, Paul, Moses... And, and a lesser status. And a lesser status. I understand. Okay, yeah, yeah. Choose. You all are here first. We'll, I don't that. We'll be the warrior. I'll be the guy. It's just, let me be part of the group. We'll go with that. But Moses references those people. He references the water bearers and the wood cutters and says you are all part of the covenant in Deuteronomy. So um, this is God's original plan, that all the nations be brought in, but they'd be brought in through repentance and ultimately, although it wasn't revealed at the time, through Yeshua. This is the method of entrance. So Peter gets sent to Cornelius. God sends him there. God sends the Holy Spirit on Cornelius and his men to prove that these Gentiles can be 100% part of the group, Amen. part of the covenant with God. Peter comes back, tells everybody, whoa, this is amazing, unbelievable, can't believe this happened. In fact, he has to tell the story like multiple times because people don't really believe him. Anyway, the point is, or at least you read the story multiple times, he has to tell the whole thing again. And it's so important, we get it all written down again. Um, yeah, all the way through. Paul captures the vision. Paul goes out and he starts teaching the Gentiles. So before we get to the tent imagery in Acts 15, um, right around the same time as Acts 15, we have the book of Galatians. So the Pharisees, I told you earlier, they were Pharisees who were following Yeshua. Some of their, I would say probably their, converts, not even actual Jews, but converts, were starting to tell the Galatians, look, not good enough. Yeshua's not enough. You really want to be in, you got to be like us, you got to convert. That's the only way in. Paul, I'm going to summarize the entire book of Galatians in a very short amount of time. If you have not done my father's study on the book of Galatians, you are missing out, and you do not understand Galatians, and you need to do that study as soon as possible. In the meantime, um, accept this two-sentence summary for now, more or less. Galatians uh, is basically Paul saying, if you say that you have to convert to Judaism to become part of the people of God, you are diminishing the sacrifice of Yeshua, making it as though it was really nothing. And in so doing, you are, um, you are setting man's rules ahead of God's rules. Mm. God's method, right? Yeshua said, I'm the way. But they're saying, well, if you do what you know, Rabbi so-and-so said, now you're in. Well, that's not what God said. God didn't say that. So Paul is, is very serious to Paul because it's undercutting the entire gospel message. Um, not that they were keeping the Torah. That's not what Galatians is about. Galatians has nothing to do with people keeping the Torah. Galatians has to do with conversion. It has to do with trying to do man's way to get in. And more importantly, the bringing of the Gentiles in. And that God wants the Gentiles in as Gentiles. Amen. So, Galatians chapter 4, Paul quotes from Isaiah 54. Paul goes back to our Haftarah um, and references this again. So, remember, Isaiah 54, the very first verse says, Seeing you bear a woman who has not born, burn out burst out into song, right? You have not experienced birth pains, for the children of the desolate woman are more than the children of the married woman. Um, in Galatians chapter 4, Paul references this passage again. Galatians chapter 4, um, Paul does an interesting imagery. So in Isaiah 54, Rashi says that the children of the desolate woman is Edom. Which is interesting. What's fascinating about it to me is that Edom is a descendant of Abraham, that's not really part of the people of God, right? They're kind of genetically related, but as, as proof, so we didn't need it, as proof the genetics are not what gets you in, Edom's not part of the group. In fact, Edom's being the enemy of the people of Israel. For those that may not be familiar, oh, Edom, Edom is Esau. Esau. Right. right. So Jacob and Esau, Jacob, people of God, Esau, not the people of God. So Paul, in this little, when he quotes from Isaiah 54, he starts by doing a similar parallel. Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael's genetically part of his, of, descendant from Abraham, 
he's not, Ishmael's not part of the covenant. Isaac is. So Genesis, Galatians chapter 4, verses 22 uh, through 27. So he says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. Think man-made conversion, rules that man came up with. And the son of the free woman, by the free woman, through the promise, right? This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, i.e. the present Jewish leadership that man requires conversion. Okay, that's what they talk about. For she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than that of the one who has a husband. Sounds like Isaiah. Which is Isaiah 54, verse 1. Mm -hmm. And you brethren like Isaac are children of promise. So his point is, Isaiah 54 is talking about this idea of, of, of expanding growth, right? Of bringing the people in. And of miracles, right? Of bringing in the people. Uh, but God bringing the people in through his own work. So Paul quotes from that, because that's how we get in, through his work, not through our work. So this marriage relationship is a bigger picture. So back to the tent imagery. So Isaiah 54, verse 2, talks about enlarging your tent, telling Israel. Well, probably one of the most important Jewish men of the first century, and if you don't know much about him, you should go back, find whatever class it is we did on uh, Acts way back in the last two years, and go re-listen to that course. Because James the Just, Jacob, um, he's the leader of the Jerusalem first century followers of Yeshua. And he has an answer for the Gentile problem. The Pharisees who converted to uh, follow Yeshua, they don't want the Gentiles in without conversion. Peter is saying, wait, I already settled this. I already met with Cornelius. It's all good. God said they can come in. As long as they repent, accept Yeshua, that's the method in. So James stops everybody, and he has this to say. Someone have uh, Acts 15, uh, verses 13 through 18. I got it. Go for it. After they finished speaking, Yaakov replied, Brothers, listen to me. Shimon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return. And I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from a boy. So you get that tent imagery, which I don't think is, is on, by accident. Mm -hmm. But it's also a temple imagery. Um, in Judaism, I think, uh, I think it was Rabbi Shalom Katz mentioned this in one of the recent podcasts with Ishai Fleischer. This idea that when the temple is back, it, the nations are going to see that. There's a tradition that the uh, in Sukkot, all the all those uh, many 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 bowls that get offered in the Sukkot passages, they add up to seventy. You add them all up, take the time and numbers, and count how many for each day. Well, they add up to seventy. To Jewish tradition, there are seventy nations. So Judaism says that that temple uh, ceremony, that temple uh, experience is a reference to the nations because Sukkot is, a, is a, going to be a holiday that all the nations are going to celebrate. Zechariah says that. The nations are going to be called up to Sukkot. Um, so when the temple is here, God's presence on earth, Israel is restored, then 
the nations start to come in. The nations want to be part. The nations want to join. And God, in his infinite mercy, is going to allow them in. He's going to do it through Messiah. Messiah is the method, as we were seeing earlier, Messiah's method to restore Israel, to restore that marriage that's been broken by their betrayal and by their misdeeds. Now they can get forgiveness. Now they can get reconciliation. Now they can be perfected. So that relationship is complete consistently. And at the same time, Yeshua is also the method in which the Gentiles come in. And that expansion of the tents, that growth, that growing of that people of God will begin to bring in us. We get to join the group. But, like we're saying earlier, we're not coming in as a replacement. We're coming in to join Israel in that husband-wife relationship with God. Um, and we have it, we owe it to, uh, to them and to God to, uh, to keep that humility in mind. And at the same time, also, to commit to God. I mean, that's what, you know, we talk about that new covenant, that new, that new Torah being written on, on our hearts. We are responsible for living that out. God is going to promise to do that to us, but we, now that we have that marriage relationship, we need to be acting like it. Um, and if we are really part of his people, then we, then we will. And we'll do it the way he described. Any final comments? Anything else anybody wants to say? So, just, just thinking in, in the New Testament where he says, there'll be neither Jew nor Gentile. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, so... one new man, is that right? The idea being there that, like, there's not a... Um, that in Yeshua, we're all equal, right? Right. But he also says there's no man nor woman. Now, obviously, it's our, our uh, physical gender continues. <laughs> so, in that sense, the... Um, it's, I think it's definitely more emphasis on equality. Because as my, as, as my mom read from Revelation, God intended all along that Gentiles would be included. And they stayed Gentiles. But in terms of, of the relationship with Yeshua, we're all equal. And we're all part of the people of God. So there's, there's the, at the same time, there's no distinction. But in the, if you think about it, you know, Rahab, she gets, she gets brought in all the way. Ruth gets brought in all the way. And yet we still know them. Ruth the Moabitess. Every time her name is mentioned, right. it's Ruth the Moabitess. Right. But she's not Ruth the Moabitess as a derogatory term. I mean, maybe some people call it that way, but I think the Tanakh the, the references that way because, wow, Ruth, I mean, hey, the Moabites, they have issues. But she got out, and she chose to join us. So Ruth the Moabitess becomes actually a, a term of, of, of honor. Wow, that's who she was. Look who she is now. Exactly. I think that's, that's true for us. I think that's why God wants us to stand to us. It isn't because, um, it's not just to prove that God is God of all the earth. I think that's part of it. But I think it's also a demonstrable way in which God can show that he works miracles. He chose us. You know, we're over here in, in the West, right? We are really far away from Israel. We are, I mean, we live in a culture that um, cover, you know, covers all of our pizza with pepperoni, right? So, I mean, how are we going to possibly get to know the God of the Torah? And in fact, um, for most of us in this room, maybe some of the younger ones excluded, uh, we definitely didn't grow up with the Torah. The fact that we're here now studying the Torah, talking about how wonderful and beautiful it is and celebrating Shabbat is a miracle. And I think God wants to capture that. And he wants that to be something that is, is a mark on us, a good way. 
not a bad way. So to your point, now the Jew and Gentile, definitely equal, one in Messiah, united. At the same time, we don't forget where we came from because that shows just how much God has done for us. Well, uh, yeah, and grafted in. Right. I just saw, I was just, it's, it's, it's still, still, you've one. got the Jewish root. It's still one. Yes. Right. Jewish root, but you're grafted in. You're still, you're still bearing apples. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, know? it didn't change, it didn't change the genetics of the, the exactly. graft, but it does allow them That's to good. become the ultimate version of themselves. God said he chose Abraham that through him all the nations, and his seed, all the nations would be blessed. Right. It was always God's plan. It, it wasn't just to choose a people. He did that without Abraham's help. Right. Through his seed, Messiah, all nations would be blessed. Because all the nations have the opportunity to join Israel. Absolutely. And his Messiah. And, and ultimately that becomes, like we were talking about earlier, that marriage relationship and we're all united together. Um, so I don't want to tread on next Tuesday's class. So we won't talk about mm -hmm. Israel's relationship to the nations and what their responsibility is. But the point being that um, this is part of God's vision. Mm -hmm. And Messiah is the, is the key to that. And what's amazing is that this is part of that comforting of God's people. How cool is that? You get to be part of that. Part of that expansion. Ended it with John 14, my favorite. Right. He's going to prepare a place for us. Mm -hmm. Right. That's all of us. All of us. Right. That's exactly what Yeshua says. He tells well, his disciples. I think last week you brought, or on Tuesday you brought us to Revelation 22, and we we were looking at the New Jerusalem and how it was made up of a part Jewish foundation and or Jewish gates with. Uh, a Gentile foundation or an apostolic foundation. Apostolic. Yeah. Apostolic foundation. But and the nations, the nations come in. were coming into it. So. Right. Very cool. Right. And uh, so God, you know, God has this plan for us. Yeshua is acting as her husband. He has a vision to come back for us. And that's what um, we read earlier. Uh, I will not drink from this wine until I return back, right? Passover was starting point mm -hmm. in the relationship, right? That was the, uh, the betrothal, so to speak. But Sinai was when the marriage happened. Yeshua's death and resurrection was a starting point in the relationship with us. But when he comes back, that's going to be the culmination. And that's what we're looking for. And we have a promise from him that he's going to. Anything else? That was awesome. Um, if I get my father-in-law close out in prayer. You got it. Good Father, we thank you so much for, uh, for Joshua and his study and uh, his diligence in the Word. We thank you most of all for Messiah Yeshua and the opportunity as Gentiles to be joined to your people, to be a part of your salvation, that we might know the creator of the world and be intimate with him. We pray for your son's soon return, Father, that we might participate in the marriage supper of the Lamb of God who has taken away the sins of the world. Amen. Amen. Amen.